Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Hilton Owls. I'm a fan of James Baldwin and Thelma Golden. I am Thelma Golden, and I am an active co-conspirator with artists and indebted to the artist Hilton Owls. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about creativity and ideas. My father had introduced me to Baldwin's work, both as the icon he was, but also as a fellow son of Harlem. I think great American authors define where you are and they help define who you are. We have to honor the great because they live so much in us. I'm Lucas Werner, editorial director of David's Werner Books. In every episode on the podcast, we'll introduce you to a surprising pairing. We're taking the artists we work with at the gallery and putting them in conversation with some of the world's most extraordinary makers and thinkers. Today's pairing, the writer Hilton Owls and the museum director Thelma Golden. Hilton is a Pulitzer Prize-winning cultural critic. For 25 years, he's been a staff writer at The New Yorker. He also writes books, collaborates with artists, and curates exhibitions in galleries and museums. Everything Hilton touches, whether it's about race, gender, visual art, theater, or literature, tells a larger and deeper story about our culture today. Thelma Golden is director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Prior to the Studio Museum, she was a curator at the Whitney, where she organized groundbreaking exhibitions including Black Male, Representations of Masculinity in American Art. She currently serves on the board of directors for the Barack Obama Foundation and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. We brought the two of them together on the occasion of a show Hilton curated at David Zwerner called God Made My Face, a collective portrait of James Baldwin. But more than the show itself, this was a chance for each of these highly creative people and longtime friends and Baldwin admirers to discuss the impact of Baldwin's legacy on their lives, their work, and their understanding of culture in general. Hilton and Thelma, thank you so much for coming here today, and welcome to Dialogues. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. And I thought before we dive right into Baldwin, who is, of course, the purpose of the podcast, I would ask how you guys met. Well, I knew of Hilton before I met him in person. When I was a student at Smith College, I would read The Village Voice. And through that, I came to know Hilton and through his work. But we met at a conference organized by the artist Charles Gaines around his project that became the volume, The Theater of Refusal. And Hilton walked into the room. I remember you had an orange tote bag. <laughs> And he walked into the room and into this conference and entered into the conversation in ways that opened it up in a way that I don't think anyone could imagine. And we began a conversation there Mm -hmm. that then came back to New York. Yes. And that's how we became friends. Yeah. I then had the distinct honor of meeting Thelma at the Odeon, and she asked me to join the Black male team. It was just a wonderful thing to see this person. She was this young woman who was commanding a lot of space 
for her artists and for herself and her ideas. It was very moving. And maybe just for a bit of context, Thelma, what, if you would talk a little bit about that show, I mean, that, of course, was a seminal show for many, many mm-hmm. people in the world and, and certainly for you in your practice, I would say. Maybe a little bit how you came to that idea and, and what it meant. Well, it certainly in many ways relates to Baldwin, but it was an exhibition that I organized, and it was an exhibition aiming to look at the representation of black masculinity in contemporary American art. Mm. And I love that Hilton um, says he joined the team. The team was me. (laughs) We were the team um, around blackmail. And while um, what I asked Hilton to do was edit the catalog, what really... I wanted and so desperately was hoping he would do is exactly what happened, which was to be a real intellectual thought partner in thinking out loud about what the exhibition could be. It looked at a whole generational shift into conceptual art practice. Mm -hmm. It looked at how one could make an exhibition about race and Mm -hmm. about identity through a range of artists. It looked at how institutional shifts could happen in mm-hmm. the space of an exhibition. And all of that happened in these conversations with Hilton at the Whitney and in a booth at the Odeon over a couple of years that led to that project and what that exhibition was. I think that partly what made it so great was that there was an ethos of modesty about the show, that it was not coming at you in terms of trying to change your mind, but it was coming at you to introduce you to what your mind had lacked and didn't know that it had lacked. And so I was so moved by the ethos of it. And I remember I can just actually sort of walk around that floor and tell you where everything was because it was such an imprint on my mind. I would love to uh, see it again. I miss it. Yeah, But it feels in spirit, at least as you guys are describing it, not dissimilar to your yeah. Baldwin show. Yeah. Right? I mean, on the one hand, that one thing you say about Baldwin, I think it's, you say over the years he became a kind of visual object himself. Yes. And so how was this show a, a way of addressing Baldwin as a visual object, as something that had been appropriated by others, and also a way of opening him back up to reclaiming parts of, of his personhood that had been lost? I kept discovering things um, largely through the help of the Beinecke Library at Yale that gave us different colors for this person. In particular, I was very interested in his philosophy of visual culture and that it had come about in various ways. It was never an essay about art, or it was never, it was always, except for his piece about Buford Delaney, there was nothing really about art. But if you went into the text, you could find remarks about color. You could find remarks about how beauty was presented in photographs. You could find remarks about his relationship to wanting to make visual art himself. So the show really was a kind of unearthing of a dimension of Baldwin. I think it's about bringing certainly his queerness, but also bringing that visual dimension to a person who longed to make visual work himself. And really, I mean, you talked at length about his desire to make films. Since he was a young man, it was a big desire of his to to make films. And in a lot of the letters, he's all through the 60s and 50s, he's always trying to get a film produced, largely by attaching the project to his great friend Marlon Brando. And he's very funny about Brando never reading the script and, you know, never really sort of getting it together. But Brando would help him 
financially, personally, often. So that big ecstatic thing at the end of the show really is a kind of release of all the things that he wasn't able to do, whether it's talk specifically about queerness and women. He was not good about women in his work. And also this explosion of a kind of joy. You know, Lucas, it's very interesting to feel this, but if you ever go like to New Orleans or places where Black people or people of color have died, there's a moment of ecstatic exchange with the other world. So in New Orleans, they'll start with a dirge and then they'll be dancing and celebration. And I really wanted that feeling in the last room that the stones that's, that join the two rooms together had to be a bridge to this ecstatic feeling and incorporate so much of what he was interested in. So I wanted this feeling of complete sort of release from the constraints of not only biography, but from what Baldwin wasn't able to do himself. He had to die in, in order to live again. And in, in a funny way, the most extreme example from that same room is Kara Walker's video. I mean, you describe that Baldwin had a plan. That's one of the things you she, discovered, right? Whenever I read Baldwin's 1961 essay about Ingmar Bergman, he um, ends the piece by describing the kind of movie he would make if he was a filmmaker, if he was given those tools. And you can feel his envy for Bergman that he's doesn't have that freedom. And he says, my movie would begin with a slave ship and it would have this intransigent figure. And it's completely like a Kara scenario. So that was really one of the big first people and centerpieces for the work, that there was this conversation that had happened without either of them knowing it. And I sent Kara the letter and she was just like, wow. So everyone was moved by the resonance. And you, Thelma, you studied with... Yeah, I mean, I, I've read about it in passing. I think there's one beautiful pa passage where you talk about him talking to you about stewardship of culture, mm -hmm. yes. among other things. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can just tell oh, us please, a little bit what that, that was me, please like. Please tell me that. I'm jealous. When I was in, in my second year at Smith College, it is the point at which Baldwin had come back to the United States as a university professor in the five college area at Smith, Amherst, UMass, Hampshire, and Mount Holyoke. And he taught several large lecture courses, but there was one seminar in which five students from each of the campuses could be in that class. Mm -hmm. And you had to apply to get into the class. And as a second-year student who was not an English major, you know, majoring in art history and wanting to be a curator, I knew I had very little chance. And so in some way, somehow I talked my way into one of those five seats, mm -hmm. got into the class, <laughs> and sat there and in that voice we're all so familiar with now, but sat in that small room and listened to him for three hours a week talk about literature and history and culture and his art and art and the world and life. And it was incredible. I was terrified. I did not speak for certainly the first four or so weeks, but the point at which we began a somewhat conversation are in those moments when his conversations about his work would move him to talking about Harlem. And very quickly, I understood that the Harlem he was speaking of was the Harlem that raised my father. And it was the case. I knew this growing up. They'd gone to the same junior high school mm -hmm. at the same time when County Cullen taught there. And my father had introduced me to Baldwin's work, both as the icon he was, but also as a fellow son of Harlem. That's mm. how Artie Golden thought about <laughs> James Baldwin. And so it was in that moment where I could offer him this sense that I had this whole 
sort of cellular memory of mm. the Harlem that he grew up in, which shocked him mm. in this little Smith College student, that we began a conversation. But what he gave me very specifically, and it's why I was brought to tears walking through your exhibition, but mm. first encountering that portrait of Baldwin by Buford Delaney, yes. is at the point when I said to him very boldly as a you know second-year 19-year-old Smith College student that I wanted to be a curator mm. and focus on African-American artists, he said to me in that Baldwin voice, Buford Delaney. Mm. And he said it over and over again. And at that time, I took it to be an assignment because that's what we do in the class. The minute he, you know, mentioned a novel, we'd all write it down and run and read it, mm. hoping the next week he'd talk about it so that we could impress him with our knowledge and he'd be off <laughs> onto something else. But he said it to me over and over again, and it did lead me to this path mm. of understanding my responsibility towards that study. It's what made me become a double major in African-American studies. But more significantly, because mm. then I graduated, and that was the year he passed away, I also think in many ways he was giving me a much bigger mandate, mm -hmm. which I feel I have lived in to this day, to which is the, the stewardship yes. of the culture, to do the work. Yes. And I always, always, always uh, am grateful for that. We all love in different ways, and I think that his profoundest love was really for young people and elders. You know, that he wasn't so much worried about his contemporaries. What he was attracted to were people like you who were coming up. He wanted to keep working. And that's one of the things I'm sure that you removed in the show, the text, where he said, in a, in a kinder world, it would have been recognized that Buford was my master and I was his pupil. And so thank you for that story. That's extraordinary. Out of pure personal curiosity, what was Baldwin like as a person and as a teacher? He was an incredible teacher, and he took real responsibility in the mm -hmm. teaching. I mean, it was completely unorthodox. It's clear that someone else had written up the syllabus because he looked at it like, who wrote this? <laughs> you know, I think, you know, he was not at all invested in a sort of, you know, linear chronological right. march through American literature. He, of course, wanted us to be voracious thinkers and, and approach the world yes. with a kind of rigor. We, of course, all wanted to hear him talk about his work. He was less invested in yes. that as he was in sort of the larger world. But it also, of course, now we know, was the end of his life. So I think we all, those of us who were his students, and I know many were very, it was very clear to us that he also wanted us to know the history and the recent history of the moment that created the moment we were in. That's right. right. So that there was a lot of reflection and personal narrative, both of his childhood and his growing up, but of the recent history. And that's what was so incredible, to sit and listen to history told by someone who witnessed it. That's right. And that's so important to me as a, as a thinker, and I know to you as a curator, context. What is the, why are we here? Who is this person? What were the years before? What were the years after that? And Baldwin was a great believer in historical context. That's partly what makes his work so amazing, is that he took history and he made a story about it. I loved one thing that he said, and I really want to encourage this, he would say, read and read and read and read until you can't read anymore, and then you write. What, what was your early experience with Baldwin? There used to be, in my school, I don't know if it exists anymore, but there used to be book clubs, and you would get a new book every month, Scholastic Magazine and books. And one of the books I chose was this very small 
volume called Notes of a Native Son and had a Ramard Bearden cover. And I kept looking at this Black figure on the book, and I started to read, and I was like, oh, this is beautiful sounding. And then for some reason, I don't know what it was, but I, I went to the middle of the book first, and that was the essay about his father. And if you've had a troubled relationship with your father, as I did, I had never heard expressed something as valiant as this, which was, we had a troubled relationship, but now I understand it was because he was trying to save my life. He, I had the sin of arrogance and pride, too, that he could not bend my father, but he, he could only be broken. And I remember that that gave me such a powerful insight into not only my father, but Black masculinity in America, that he always took the argument from the personal to the broad. When I read that, it taught me that my experience in and of itself was okay. But what was interesting is if you could tie it to the rest of the world. So you read the essays first. I think yes. it's very interesting, you know, how one comes how, to how was you, how was What was your experience? I think, well, my father had it all, and I'm, I'm sure he introduced me to the essays first, mm-hmm. but what I remember reading first fully and what bonded me to Baldwin um, was a novel, Another Country. Oh, wow. And so that's what came that's first. That's a big book. It was How a big, old were you? 16. Wow, that's a young it person. Wa- it was, but, you know, my father, you know, had no... Um, sense of appropriateness right. in <laughs> what he allowed me um, to read. And so well, he wanted you to be a free thinker. He did. Yeah. And so I read Another Country. And that's what brought me to Baldwin through the fictional lens. Yes. And it's only after Another Country, If Beale Street Could Talk, Giovanni's Room, Just go Above My the, Head, Go Tell on the Mountain, that then I got by college to the essays. Wow, that's very interesting. It's very interesting because uh, completely the opposite Mm -hmm. exchange. I related strongly to the first part of Another Country where the the man is losing his Mm -hmm. mind in New York because Mm -hmm. I knew from Mm -hmm. the essays that that had been his best friend. Mm -hmm. So I was always tied to the reality of Mm -hmm. Baldwin Mm -hmm. more than the um, metaphorical until this show Mm -hmm. where it had to be ecstatic and metaphorical. Mm -hmm. I was surprised, I have to say, that the three books were books of essays that I, I expected to be directed back to, to novels and to fiction. Yeah, that's and then reading your writing on Baldwin, of course, seeing that there are moments where you kind of explicitly say his strong, you know, he is strongest when he is writing in those. That you I feel. think it's completely subjective of because course, he's such a, because mm-hmm. I think great American authors define where you are and they help define who you are. So it's just coming at his thinking at two different ways as a storyteller and as a as a as an essayist. These things are always in a way difficult to talk about well, but one of the things that I was most moved by was you detailing how Baldwin was sort of stuck, stuck between mm-hmm. the radical black movement that was unfolding yeah. and of course the white world that had embraced him. Right. When you were making your show, did you have audiences in mind, or was it really about creating a vision of Baldwin that was completely open to all interpretations? When I was putting the show together, there were questions that I felt that I had to be more explicit about answering. I didn't feel it was for a white or black audience or a male or female audience. It felt 
that my experience of him was so personal that I had to excavate some of that deepness and share. But I think the beauty of your curating in this exhibition and generally is also what I so value and admire and am inspired by in your writing. Mm -hmm. So your ability, as you described it with Baldwin, to get super close, Mm -hmm. up close to your subjects or your ideas, Mm -hmm. and then to pull back and give us a world in which to understand them. And I think, you know, what's so incredible about Baldwin is his essentialness. And so it's Mm -hmm. easy to think about him in these broad terms. And Mm -hmm. what the exhibition does is it creates so much nuance around our understanding of even the big categories of what we know about his life. That's right. What you've done, and you've done it with art, you've allowed for this very complex way Mm -hmm. of thinking about not just Baldwin's biography— not only his legacy, Mm -hmm. but his presence in this moment. Thank you for that. And I think it couldn't have happened without the enormous freedom. Because if I, and I'm terrible with plans, and I'm terrible with mock-ups and all of that stuff, I have to be in the space and feel it. And it was an emotional event that I had to feel. And I had to see that work and touch it. And one of the great inspiring things was Glenn Ligon's piece, Stranger Number 13, I think it's called, And one of the things that I loved was that when it was put up, the coal dust falls a bit. And so the the handlers were hysterical and were calling Glenn's studio and saying, oh, my God, you know, the coal dust is coming. Oh, no, 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 it should. It's fine. And that released me, too, that everything was valuable and nothing was precious. That was the point. Hilton, one of the things you you did by going into the Beinecke was discover these letters between Baldwin and his most influential teacher, Orilla Miller, who was referred to as Bill Miller by him and, I think, other people. What was her role in his life? Her son came to the opening. Wow, I had no idea. Yes, he came to the opening, and her niece. It was incredibly moving. I mean, what was it that drew you to that relationship in particular? Well, he's he's talked about it in The Devil Finds Work and uh, Notes of a Native Son and Fire Next Time, but he gives her credit for him not becoming a racist, that he understood that race was behavior and that it wasn't a skin color. So when her his mother, when she helped them through winters and so on, he said my mother gave her the highest compliment that she could, which was that she was a Christian. He realized that it was something about the culture and about politics that made whiteness and blackness not the skin color. And so in the exhibition, when we go from the pain of his father in the church, lynching, Cameron, segregation. There has to be love. Like, he has to fall in love. He falls in love for the first time with his teacher. And she's the one who tells him the truth. He said it's the first time that it wasn't a cop, a landlord, a shopkeeper exploiting him. Here was this person who told him the truth. And she took him to plays. She took him to plays. She gave him books. They read Dickens together. It was his first real companion. She talked to him about Haile Selassie, Spanish resistance. She politicized him, and she gave him the freedom to develop his own language. So on that wall, he goes from the love of Bill Miller to his mother, who was the essential relationship. And I think that Bill... He wouldn't have survived as beautifully and productively had it not been for her. I was going to ask you, Thelma, how you 
found yourself on the path that you eventually found yourself on? You know, again, teachers, right? And I think my first teacher and perhaps my most rigorous teacher in a way was my father and his own love and insistence on creating for me an education that I was not getting in school. You know, in the understanding that Black literature, Black history, the history of certain resistance politics would not be taught to me in school, that was the diet of books and newspaper articles that he gave me. But that also was supported in school and my love of art that made it so that in fifth grade, I had a teacher who is still alive, Lucille Buck. Mrs. Buck taught me art history. That was the sort of turning point for me between childlike attempts at making art to understanding that the history of art was this profoundly amazing way into the world. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was in high school, I was spending all of my time in museums and went to college with the express idea that I wanted to be a curator of contemporary art. Do you remember your first encounters with contemporary artists or contemporary art? Sure. It was going to, you know, like the 1981 Biennial, uh, walking around the corner from my school on 77th Street. And I probably went to see that 1981 Biennial at least once a week. 1983 Biennial was my senior year in high school. So by then I was, you know, not really going to class very much. (laughs) I'd already gotten into college. So there I was, you know, seeing that and going to Soho of that moment and going to the galleries in Soho where I was seeing all that we now think of as 80s art, but just as like my primary sources. Mm -hmm. So contemporary art, the art of the moment, and artists reading about In the Village Voice, reading Hilton's writing about the artists of that moment really compelled me to think about art not just in relation to the object, but the artist. That's also why it was such a formative experience to be in the present of this great artist as a young person, James Baldwin, because it really compelled me into thinking about how I might act actively in the spirit of artists and their work. It's very interesting and beautiful about what you bring up about the legacy because I just could not mess up. I did not want him to be upset with this show. That's right. And I wanted him to even be a little jealous Mm -hmm. more than being, oh, it's okay, or I wanted him to be there with us and also be like a little bit like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. We have to honor the great because they live so much in us. In a funny way, why an exhibition in a space for visual art about a writer? What does visual art offer as a space that maybe the literary space doesn't necessarily provide? The wonderful thing about curating and curating conceptual pieces is that you're not bound to linear descriptions of anything. And I felt that he was getting very hemmed in by linear discussions and by analysis that was kind of cheap. He was being pilfered in ways that I didn't like. So he was a political philosopher, but what about the gay thing? um, He was, you know, prescient about segregation, but what about being a walker in cities? He was um, a master of the sentence, but what about his mother? I mean, these are things that are impossible to contain between covers. And the energy of these artists collectively expresses that myriad self. And they all play off of each other in the most brilliant ways that I, no one could have imagined um, until they were in that room together or those two rooms together. And is that some of the same reason why you're drawn to curating? I mean, I could have imagined you 
also being an art historian or being someone who works in, let's say, a more narrative field like film or writing. I think I'm a curator because I was compelled by museums and the possibility that museums offer in the access to art. Mm -hmm. And that's what made that clear. I am not a writer, and the writer that I am is really because of Hilton. Hilton has been my most profound editor Mm -hmm. and has allowed me as a curator to find a voice as a writer Mm -hmm. different than an art historian, different than a critic, but one that is in conversation with artists. And I have always um, been grateful to Hilton for that and that he's pulled that out of me. Well, it's also, I mean, a deep pleasure because... It's all there, and you're having the joy that one feels in reading you is the joy of your connecting to the artists living and dead. And they're never dead because it's alchemy. It's a sort of spiritual combustion, those museum walls, especially at the Studio Museum in Harlem. You know, Thelma, what really comes through in your interviews is how enmeshed you are in the space of the museum itself, its own history, and your family's history in Harlem. And to all that has come from Harlem, you know, and that's where, you know, again, and I didn't know that that's the gift that Baldwin gave me because what he allowed me to do is to ask my father questions, which essentially gave me my father and his history and made it mine. That's right. And that's the work of a brilliant curator like Thelma. There's no separation between the past and the present. Each makes the other. And that's why curators are, to me, deeply valuable human beings because they're so interested in being that link. And thank you guys both for being here today. Thank you, Lucas. Thank Thank you. you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists in this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review Dialogues on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. This podcast is a partnership between David Werner and Slate Studios.